hard as you can. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. I'm so proud of you. You didn't screw up once. It's cheaper than a movie and there's free coffee. 99 mac and cheese next. When your weekends all spin up and Monday's coming down the pike, sometimes all you need is a little comfort to get you through to Monday. Mac and cheese movies, or we believe in comfort food and comfort movies. Hello, and welcome to Mac and Cheese Movies. I'm Scotty Coppage, and she doesn't want to talk about her flair. It's Shannon Coppage. You changed it. I had something cool to be saying. I only want 13 pieces of flair. Okay. <laughs> Our, ge- our guest is the writer of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, a look at how 1999 was the most groundbreaking year for films. It's Brian Raftery. Good to have you on, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is great. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Right. We have lots of comfort foods for you in honor of 1999. We have Pick Flick Cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did not make, make nearly as many as she did. <laughs> We have, uh, we have apple pie for American pie. We have coffee here for Fight Club and Office Space. That was easier. <laughs> and we're not going to eat it, but Shannon makes soap, so we're throwing that into the show. Some homemade soap. Yep. And yep. I'm going to do a Matrix steak on the grill later today. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll have a pile of goo, like just sitting next to it as an alternative. <laughs> so, Brian, how'd you come up with the idea to write this book? It's funny, I actually, I worked at, uh, in 1999, I was an intern at Entertainment Weekly in the summer, and it became a job, it was my first ever real grown-up job, so I moved from sort of rural Pennsylvania to Manhattan, and was going to screenings for the first time, and was really caught up in movie culture, and even then, we sort of knew it was a pretty remarkable year. Um, Entertainment Weekly actually did a cover story that year, that was 19, called 1999, the year that, yeah, there you go. Is, is it this one? Forever, yeah. 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 Um, so I'd always been aware it was a really special year, and I saw a lot of these movies. I can remember who I saw them with. I can remember what screening room or what theater I saw them in, because it was just, I was 24, and that's when you just, back in the late 90s, movies were just every weekend. That's what you did. You did not talk about TV that much. You went to go see movies, and that was what you had dinner and called friends afterward, and it was kind of a big part of your day to day life. So I always knew it was a very special year when you have like The Matrix and Fight Club and Blair Witch and Sixth Sense all in these 12 months. But I think as the years went on, uh, people realized just how special it was because we don't get a lot of years like that, and we especially don't get them now. Um, so a couple years ago, I was just thinking about writing about 1999 in general. There was a lot of interesting stuff that year going on. It was. Teen pop and you know the women's soccer and the Sopranos and then an, author, an editor Simon Schuster said why don't you just write about the movies of 1999 and you can use those movies to talk about Y2K and Clinton and Columbine and all these other things that happened that year that were sort of being mirrored in a weird way by the movies. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to research and what was that process like for you to do the interviews and the research and all the things you had to do? Um, I'm talking to you from my office in Burbank and if I could pull out you would see I have hundreds of old magazines that I really need to get rid of I wound up like I have the entire 90s run of Entertainment Weekly I have most premiere I think I have every issue of Time Magazine and Newsweek from 99 at some point so the the, the research is the most fun part because you're just reading old magazines all day and (laughs) audio commentaries and, and then putting together your wish list of who you want to talk to but uh, the problem was this book had to come out this year because it was the 20th anniversary, so it was a very accelerated schedule. So I had a very weird year where I was getting up every morning at 4.30 and 5, 
watching a movie, then the next day watching that same movie, the director's commentary, then the next day, next three days, reading every single thing I could before my kids got up and before I went to work. So it was a very kind of hectic research schedule because then I had to start scheduling all these interviews. And there was 130 interviews almost total over 19 months, wow. I think. Wow. So that's, it was a pretty breakneck pace. And it was like at the very last minute, um, you know, I, I managed to get a lot of great people for the book, but the first person to say yes, maybe the second or third person was Edward Norton, who wound up being the last person I knew. It took 19 months to get him on the phone, even though he was going to do it because he's, these people are all very busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was a lot of, it was just the amount of emails sent. It's just, it's a weird combination of research and watching and, you know, frantically running home to do a last minute interview because someone can get on the phone right away. So it's, it was a weird kind of two, two and a half month process, I think. And then your kids would walk in and they'd be like, hey, dad, you'd be like, leave me alone. I'm working. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, like, then, I could take them along for a little bit where I'm like, yeah. daddy has to watch this movie called The Phantom Menace. It's a Star Wars movie. So do you, want, do you, do you want to watch it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You can join me in my work day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So luckily they were just old enough that stuff like The Iron Giant, which they really liked, or Toy Story 2, the other 99 movies, but they weren't watching American Pie, <laughs> yeah, or, or stuff like that. Yeah. Not for a few um, years so yet. There were a couple of very intense mornings. There was a whole week where I had to watch like Boys Don't Cry three times in a week. Jeez. For no oh my in gosh, the that is a tough movie to wake up to and to frame mm-hmm. your entire day. That would be intense, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Well, what you were talking about mo- magazines when Scotty was like, "Okay, we've got this podcast coming up." He did the exact same thing because he has all of these old magazines. And he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've got a 1999 <laughs> issue of Entertainment Weekly. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, you need to you need to go through that. And he's like, look, it was useful. <laughs> <laughs> They're great to have. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this stuff's not online. There's a whole myth no. now that everything is available digitally. But um, a lot of the stuff, like, just you know, I have, I have here, I have the New York Times from... New Year's Eve 1999 and January 1st 2000 and you can read those articles online but you need to like go through the ads and the tiny you can only find stuff you're looking for it's just stuff that pops up kind of randomly that you've discovered through those things but it takes up way too much room and I need to do something with all well and you get more of a feel of how everyone was feeling with the ads and with the articles and everything all together in the conglomerate yeah There's there's a lot of talk about you know Y2K and how these filmmakers took the moment to put it all on the line um, you know, I look back and I would almost love to go back to that feeling like of 1999. I mean, cause now we have climate change, mass shootings, the economic collapse. Do you think we'll get a creative breakthrough in response to the times we're in now? Like we did in 1999. That's an interesting question. I mean, the thing that's so weird about these movies coming out that year and the fact that it felt like a response. I mean, you know, being John Malkovich is this kind of remarkable movie where if you watched it now and said this came this came out before Y two K and the dawn of the internet era, people would go, "Oh, well, obviously this was a reaction to it." But they, you know, a lot of these movies they started writing in ninety three, ninety four. I mean, The Matrix was sitting around for years. Election, which is a very different movie, was a novel that had been sitting around for a couple of years. Um, so a lot of these ideas were starting to form in the early nineties, and I don't think even. I'd be lying if I said back in 1999, I was like, wow, look at how all these movies are reflecting the fears of the time. I mean, obviously, The Matrix, people didn't walk out of The Matrix saying, hmm, we're really becoming enslaved to our technology now, aren't we? They walked out talking about the fight scenes. It's, I think it's only a, um, only in the years later did we start putting together how much of these big ideas were kind of all coming from these movies in one year. And I don't think even uh, um, some of the filmmakers realized it. I mean, I interviewed, Steven Soderbergh had a great movie that year called The Limey. 
And when I asked him about it, I was like, is this a coincidence that this all happened, or is this... And he's like, you know, artists just have their antenna up, and sometimes when you have this many artists, this is what was in the mood. This was the mood of the late 90s, as much as we like to remember all this optimism, which was there. There was also, you know, Time Magazine and Newsweek doing these, you know, cover stories on how the computers were going to shut down and how we'd become so dependent on them that our lives are going to be upturned. And there was a little a weird uneasiness about the millennium. Um, but I don't know if, I don't know how culture works right. I mean, culture is so different now. It takes years to make a movie to react to something, whereas the culture now is instantly, I mean, you know, on the internet, you can react to anything through a meme. Uh, you could do a meme right now. What happened happening in the culture before you could make a movie in two years? Um, so I don't know. It's kind of. I mean, I think also it's interesting. I'd be really interested to look back um, twenty years from now and see what we can make of the movies that are out. I do think when you look back at two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, it's fascinating to me that you have Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood, and No Country for Old Men arriving right before the entire American stock. I mean, just before the, the recession where. All these movies about capitalism and about greed, and all of a sudden, I feel like that was saying something that we, we didn't know at the time. If you look back now, you're like, oh, this is obviously reacting to what's going on in the culture at that point. Um, so I don't know. It's very, very hard. It's very hard to know what artists, what they're going to pull from at this point, how long it takes to put a movie out, or even in TV shows reacting to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about like these movies, like, you know, kind of makes you ask, who am I? Who else could I be? Um, kind of an alternate world, but an alternate you, like the real you. Like when you saw these movies, like did that have that effect? I mean, this this was there were a lot of movies where you come out and it like feels like life changing. Mm. Yeah, I think especially. I, I mean, I certainly remember of all of these. I remember Malkovich was the one that everyone, being John Malkovich, you walked out of because you would just try to explain it to someone who hadn't seen it yet, and it was just like. It was a very hard. You can see why it took so long for you know Charlie Kaufman to get someone to make that script as a movie. It's like how do you explain that? It's not about just some machine that sends you into someone's life, like a body swap movie. It's specifically John Malkovich, and it's a tunnel into his brain from this very weird office building. But I remember that that was a movie where everyone talked about afterward was like, what was that about? Like what that felt like it was kind of cracking your head open a little more immediately. Um, Whereas other movies that year that were kind of about identity, Boys Don't Cry, maybe a little bit of The Matrix, you didn't walk out immediately thinking about that. I think Malkovich was to me like so fascinating that like you walked out and so I started talking about like, wait, what does this mean? Is this about stealing someone's life or their identity? Is this a body swapping movie? Um, and I think I think being John Malkovich was probably the first time I'd even heard the word transgender on screen. Like I think that's a pretty remarkable idea, considering now that's something we talk about every day. Back then, I mean, I specifically remember the audience laughing at the screen because it was like, what a, people just didn't know what that concept meant. Right. Um, but I think Malkovich was very much a movie where you walked out really sort of thinking about, maybe you, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch to say everyone walked out thinking, who am I? But I think you did walk out sort of going, hmm, where am I headed? Like, what is what life am I in? What does it mean if you can just start grabbing someone else's life and whose life would you, would you swap with? Because it's in, you know, it's in Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, it's, it's all these movies that year are about identity and very navel-gazing, it, though I don't think annoyingly so. It's just that was what we were worrying about in the late 90s is we did not have, um, you know, that all changed in a couple of years, but you could afford to sit around for a couple of years and go, huh, what are we doing here? It wasn't the kind of crazy <laughs> environment we live in now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where you have to jump from one thing to the next immediately. We actually yeah. had a, a friend that uh, they... 
they knew this was coming up and they were like, have you ever noticed the similarities between office space and fight club? Uh, and we were like, what? And they go, well, there's a mental break, breakdown, hypnosis causes guy to disassociate and leave his job. His friends eventually join him in mayhem and money schemes. Money movies end with the old establishment workplaces destroyed and guy finds a girl who has similar outlook. (laughs) I had never thought about that ever. (laughs) They're all white collar cubicle. Like I've got to get out of this terrible office job in order to find, to find myself kind of ideas. And they both have a, like guru, because in Office Space he's got a uh, Lawrence like giving him advice. You know, it's like they both have these weird mentors that no one else really knows about that are kind of helping them guide their new philosophy. Yeah, no, they're very. It's weird. Those movies play very much like mirrors of one another. They do, and, and like all like the, like a lot of movies that year were directors who had like left a job they hated to become directors. Like you had Alan Ball, you know, Mike Judge. Um, I know there's others. I know there's others. But, like, you know, it's, and so it's like, I mean, usually, like, these directors, it felt like, you know, they were film school brats or whatever, and that was, like, what they were born to do. These people, they were in other industries for a little bit before they found their calling. Yeah. I mean, a lot, and that's what's kind of interesting about the year is that you had these big, you had all these different generations. So you have, you know, George, I mean, The Phantom Menace is, it is what it is, but at the time, aside from it being a new Star Wars movie, it was the first movie George Lucas actually directed in decades. He hadn't directed a movie in, in I don't think he directed movies since the first Star Wars. So that was a big deal. You know, Stanley Cooper came back that year. Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader got together to make Bringing Out the Dead. So you have that whole, Terrence Malick, you know, you have that whole 70s class coming back. And then you have all these filmmakers like Spike Lee and Soderbergh who, and Michael Mann who had kind of come up in like the sort of mid '80s, Michael Mann's a little earlier, but like sort of you know the late '80s indie scene or sort of self-starter scene, and then you have, like you said, you have you know Spike Jones who comes from MTV, you have Mike Judge MTV videos, you have Mike Judge who comes from Beavis and Butthead, you have David Fincher who comes from music videos, um, you have a lot of these filmmakers who were coming kind of from these different mediums, um, and the one thing they wanted to do was make movies, and now it's and now I wonder what that would be if you were 23 and really ambitious and very visually inclined. Would you be angling to direct your own, write, direct your own feature, or would you be writing, you know, a ten-episode limited series? You know, what that—that's what's kind of changed. I think back then, the movies were the, the thing you wanted to break into. You know, mm-hmm. it was the escape. <laughs> but now you have you have more power, you have more control in TV. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. of course, yeah. more money for the most part. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally, and you have more visibility in the culture. I think mm-hmm. in a lot of ways too. Yeah, absolutely. With Rushmore, Virgin Suicides, Election, you know, American Pie, Cool Intentions, Varsity Blues, plus 10 other teen films, how, how does the 99 teen films compare to the whole John Hughes catalog? I think, you know, it's weird because I'm trying to figure out, I was trying to count at one point whether there was more of them in 99 than, say, in 84, 85, but I've forgotten how many, like, schlocky, risky business knockoffs there were in yeah. the 80s and that's the VHS era. Um I love, I mean, I came of age of, like, you know, Breakfast Club and those the Ferris Bueller's Day Off and, and stuff, movies like Lucas. Those are my, like, teen movies from the 80s. Yeah. And it was, you know, one thing about writing and reporting the book is that the 99 teen movies, I think, you know, Rushmore was very different. Election was very different. Those are, I feel like those are kind of, like, movies that had teenage characters, but that were also half about a very troubled <laughs> adult character. Mm-hmm. But the teen movies that year, I didn't see a lot of them because I was 24 and I was like, I'm not watching high school mm-hmm. movies anymore. It's like, there's this thing called The Matrix. It's yeah. like, I'm not, you know, it's like, <laughs> not gonna... um, so when I revisited them, 
Um, and some of them I really, and a lot of them I really did like, and some of them I did see at the time. I, did, I mean, everyone saw American Pie. It made a hundred million dollars, which is insane. I think it's still probably the one or two biggest uh, teen movies, high school movies ever made. But to me, it was more. Um, I was kind of surprised by how much more sort of um, a little bit more empathetic maybe they were. Some of them were. I think you can definitely, if you look at some of the kind of high school scenes, like in, in some of these teen movies, there are characters who are clearly gay or who are clearly sort of would have been marginalized or made fun of maybe in some of the 80s movies that you can even see in the late 90s, they're trying to make a little more inclusive, mm-hmm. um, even if they're not entirely sure what they're doing. But, you know, I, the way I wrote about them was I, I find these movies very moving because, you know, frankly, I mean, not to be a bummer, bring this down, but, you know, in April, there was 99, there was Columbine, and I think that changed, and I remember thinking at the time, I'm really glad I'm not in high school anymore. Like, I just think this is going to change you know, everyone sort of makes these big pronouncements of what they thought at the time, but I definitely, 99, everyone I knew it was like high school was going to change forever, and it kind of did. And I think these movies, all of which were shot in like 98, early 99, I think they do capture this sort of, that era of 90s high school where it's like, there's no metal detectors, there's no jokes about guns, there's no, you know, it's just like, it feels very like, you're worried, what you're worried about in high school is whether your parents need to get along, whether you need a date, you know, who's in love with you, like all these very kind of things that, that were the same when I was in high school, just a few years before. And I think those things still exist, obviously, for high schoolers, but there's another layer of kind of something bigger going on. And I think those movies are loved partly because they're kind of like frozen. They're just sort of like, this is what high school was like for a long time, and then part of it had to stop. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of part of some of their charm in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, I think the John Hughes stuff, you know, that's been on TV for 30 years, and I've watched this stuff a million times. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to watch The Virgin Suicides anytime it's on TBS or something, or, um, or, or some of those movies, but it's, it's just kind of like, yeah, we have this real kind of huge teen boom here in 99. Like, is this the Kevin Williamson scream effect? And like how Scream was the big hit, and they were like, "Let's just let's make these movies. Let's keep making this over and over." Yeah, I think it was two things. I actually had a whole section on how this happened that I wound up cutting. And most people I talked to, it was really Clueless. Mm -hmm. Like Clueless in '95 was sort of the because for years they really had trouble getting teenagers going to movies. At that point, there was just they couldn't. They were just teens would go to adult movies, but they didn't want to go to movies about teenagers. So when Clueless happened, and it was so cheap, and it made so much money. Um, and it obviously made everyone there a star. Um, I think the studios were like, oh, let's start developing these. And then when Kevin Williamson, like you said, when he did Scream, and actually he did last summer, then it was this realization of, oh, we can take these stars from, there's the, now these, there's the CW or the WB, and it's like, we can take these TV stars, and their kids, they're no names to us, but the kids will show up on opening weekend to go see them in movies. I don't think mm-hmm. most adults knew who... Jennifer Love Hewitt was, or Neb Campbell, who were working at studio, who were at studio executives, they were like, oh, teenagers know who they are. There's a huge number of teenagers. They will go see anything. And then once you had, like, the Dawson's Creek sort of effect, all of a sudden you have, like, 50, almost every major TV star is a teenager or playing a teenager, so you just start putting them in movies. And they burnt that out pretty soon after 99, I think 2000. I think, like, I think Bring It On is probably the apex of that movement. Like, that was, what, 2000, 2001. That was the highest it was ever going to get, and then it started to kind of diminish a little bit. But certainly, um, you know, it's, it was it was a pretty remarkably accelerated. I remember just at one point, I was like, why is everything about teenagers all of a sudden? It just happened <laughs> sort of overnight. Um, and, you know, they made these movies. Like, a movie like Varsity Blues, when you rewatch it now, it's like, it's basically just taking the same teen rebellion template of, you know, rebel without a cause, and just, just like the grown-ups don't understand the sensitive young guy who wants to get out of town. It's like that's a lot of. To me, it's 
partly Ferris Bueller in a way. It's just so many teen movies are just, just like the young, angsty guy who just need like he's figured life out already and has to get skipped town. And that's that's why that movie works so well. And they sold it as a big rebellion movie, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Varsity Blues is great. Um, like the Phantom Menace. Um, with, in your interviews and everything, did pe- people on the inside did did they think, hey, this is going to be great? Did they think? You know, I think what we all thought was like, this is, Ewan McGregor is going to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. This trailer's amazing. Like, this is going to be like the, the greatest thing ever. I mean, the expectations <laughs> were so big for that movie. Which is honestly, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that the movie really deserved, it was mostly us building it up so much yeah, that made it as bad as it was in our minds. <laughs> well, it was also, I mean, it was, it would have been a big thing anyway, but it was just, it was the first movie of that kind to arrive during the internet era. Like, I remember I was interning at a, at a movie news website when the trailer came out, and we were all just hunched over this Macintosh. Like, we were watching it online. We were watching a tiny, like, the size of maybe, like, three business cards put together, a little rectangular screen. And it was buffering, or just like, this is the most amazing thing. You can see R2-D2 and C-3PO again. And so the excitement was just very much also, like... You know, back when I was a kid and a big movie was coming out, like, you saw a trailer, and then it was six months, you just kind of waited, you talked about the trailer, and then, like, a magazine article came out, and you talked about that. But whereas The Phantom Menace, it was every single day, someone was posting, like, this is what I think it's about, here's a rumor of who's in it, and it's just so, it was just, like, a news trip. So by the time it arrived, you're like, well, obviously, this is the most important movie ever made, and it's, if it's this important, it's going to be great, and, you know, it was not... I mean, I saw it, I, you know, like most people I saw, I, I got to see a screening a couple days before it opened, I remember, like, coming home and, like, waking up my parents, because I was still going to be like, I don't know what happened, Something, I think I just saw the wrong movie, I don't know what's going on, I can't <laughs> believe this, um, you know, I was I was 23 and probably had more important things that I should have been worried, worried about at that point, but, you know, I saw it two or three times in the theater, and then I bought a Times Square VHS bootleg, because I was like, how do I make this good, this has to be good somehow, um, but that said, I, I do appreciate it now a lot more than I did 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, I think for... I enjoy the new Star Wars movies, some of them, I but though they are very much trying to recapture the old aesthetic, they're like, let's rebuild the Death Star, whereas Phantom Menace, at least George Lucas was trying to build new worlds, and even though he would build a new world and throw 7,000 spaceships in it, and you're like, what's going on? And even though the dialogue is, is just sounds like it's from a broken speaking spell, it's like, at least he was trying to do something with with the Star Wars world and mm-hmm. kind of make it bigger. It just didn't work. Um, and he hadn't directed in a long time and it, you could tell, you know. And, and this movie really kind of is a precursor to what Hollywood's going to be as far as IP and world building and how yeah. that's everything, you know, now. Yeah. Phantom Menace and the Mummy came out within three weeks of each other in 1999. If you look at those two movies, the Brendan Fraser Mummy, you know, Universal very specifically... Universal was in a very bad spot for a couple of years. They had a lot of big bombs. They're like, why don't we just go through our archives? What do we own the rights to that has a big name? Let's let's revive it. I mean, no one used the word reboot back then, but that was really that was the mission. And then the Mummy became a big hit, and they tried to revive it again a couple of years ago with Tom Cruise, and they'll just they'll just keep doing that. Um, but yeah, certainly look at Phantom Menace and the Mummy. It's like the, the fact those movies did so well. Um, they certainly point to where the big studios were going to be going. You know, now that's that's exclusive, almost exclusively what they do. Absolutely. Um, so the Graduate is an influence on Fight Club and Rushmore, and probably more right. of these movies. But why the Graduate? What was it about the Graduate that really 
that really influenced them so much. I mean, I don't know. There was a lot in that movie that we hadn't really seen before or not too terribly much, but... That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it's a little bit, if you look at the filmmakers who were, a lot of them were kind of in their late 20s to early 40s, and they had been in an age where that movie, when they were younger, was just, that was a big movie of of the late 60s, early 70s. It was a big counterculture movie. It was a big pop cultural kind of event. Um, But I think also, I think, I wonder if part of it's just, again, the idea of making a very big, commercial, enjoyable, you know, kind of, pop movie with a very sort of dark you know like dark message. It's, it's got some there's some dark messages to it and it's really I think also what's so exciting about that movie is that that movie kind of heralded a revolution for filmmakers and it also introduced kind of a new a younger generation was seeing themselves on screen in Benjamin Braddock so I wonder if that's it I think also it's just it's a very sneak I mean, for a big hit movie that people sing Mrs. Robinson and think is this very jaunty fun it's, it's really dark and it's about mm-hmm. You know the pressures of a big capitalist system pushing down on a guy, and I think you know that's Fight Club. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think you know for Rushmore, I think it was very much they were looking at this sensitive young man in trouble, and Benjamin Braddock's a pretty great you know on-screen model for that. You know, someone who's way too smart and doesn't always realize how off-putting that can be. And, um, but this also, you know, this. These, gener- these filmmakers all grew up, up on film history, and especially that period from like 68 to 80, 81 in America, which was still you know the, the greatest era of filmmaking. I mean, they studied it. Those are the movies they had. They had come up with those movies. They had come up with all the President's Men and The Graduate and Network and all these amazing films that were just big commercial Oscar hits. Um, so I think that's what that's what had fed them when they were in their teens and twenties. So they're going to bring. I think that's what they were sort of felt like they wanted to keep try to keep that going in some way. Absolutely. Um, for American Beauty, um, are you team floating bag video? <laughs> <laughs> I you know, it's it's such. I remember seeing that movie. And I really. It's it, there's been a little bit of a rewrite of history, and I and I sometimes get frustrated with my former Entertainment Weekly colleagues because they were very 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 pro that movie and I was like this little winky intern who was like I don't like that at all and I just felt like I was totally and now they've all turned against it um I did not like American Beauty I was not looking forward to rewatching it that said when I rewatched it because I interviewed Alan Ball and a couple of the people involved in Sam Mendes you know the thing about the floating bag is like he's a kind of dopey stoned out teen and that's what dopey stoned out teens think is deep I mean that's the thing like it's not if you look at it, I mean, the problem is that the way it's shot, you can you can sort of think, well, they're trying to tell the audience this really is deep. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's true to the character. I mean, <laughs> maybe a different filmmaker would have kind of winked a little bit at how ridiculous that idea is. But it also, it, it affected a lot of people. So I'm not going to take that away from them. They find it very moving. It's, it's just like, it's totally what if you were, if you were like stuck in a detention for being late to class and there was a stoner kid behind you in 11th grade, He's the one who'd be like, "Look at that bag outside, man." <laughs> that's very much what those kind of kids do. Um, and that movie's also, you know, the thing about that movie—it's really interesting too—is like, I forgot until I rewatched it how much of it is that kid filming things with a camcorder, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that kind of started that year where like young teenagers were getting cameras, soon they'd be in their phones, but they were documenting everything. They'd, they'd been watching the real world for the last six, seven years, so they were starting to document their own lives, which I think is also kind of an interesting moment of that scene. How do, how do you all feel about the um, floating bag 20 years later? <laughs> I, I, I loved American Beauty back then. Yeah. I love it now. I think the director's carry on it is really good. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and I'm, I'm still I'm still for this movie. I feel like I was I was floating bag guy, you know. <laughs> like, I mean, I wasn't filming everything, but I would look at something ridiculous and be like, "There's so much meaning here." <laughs> so it really it struck a chord, and then years later, you're just like, "That was dumb. I was dumb." <laughs> it, and like, I mean, I was reading some of the kind of the criticism of the movie. And they were like, well, you know, this character doesn't do this or whatever. And it's like, you can't give every character like 45 minutes. Um, you have to like make decisions on stuff. And it's like, that's, that's a movie for you, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, I've always, I just never liked dark side of suburbia movies. I just never, I was always just like, yeah, it's dark. I grew up in the suburbs. I know people are, people are <laughs> like, you know, in, that, in that movie's defense, I'm, I mean, I really remember at the time I was like, this is so exaggerated, some of the stuff. But now it's like, well, we do have... Uh, Nazis living next door in, in suburbia. You right. know, we have like people like Kevin Spacey was playing, or like Kevin Spacey kind of like uh, being very skeevy. So a lot of stuff feels very weirdly, uncomfortably prescient, I guess, in a way. Right. Right. You think if you could open the door, then uh, you'd see all of that, and it's a little terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Do you th- if you if you were in charge, you could go back. How do you think you would have marketed Fight Club? Do you make it as weird as it is, like with those PSAs they were trying to do? Um, like what? What did they? What could they have done to promote that movie better? That's a good question. I mean, you know, a lot of these filmmakers, when you ask them about these movies, because you know, a lot of these movies didn't do. I mean, that are huge. You know, Office Space was famously a huge hit failure. Sorry, Fight Club did not do as well. Election was barely released in theaters. Um, and there's always a bit of a, and they, you know, they were all rediscovered through video and through word of mouth and the internet. Um, and, you know, most filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers really do kind of blame marketing to the point where you're like, it's not always the marketing. But I do think Fight Club was just, I mean, I, I don't know if there was a way of selling that that would have made people comfortable. I mean, Brad Pitt had just done Meet Joe Black, which was this big, swoony, you know, romance drama. He had just done, he'd done Legends of the Fall and Seven Years to Bet, like, I don't know if people really wanted to see him playing a nihilist guru who gets the, the bejesus knocked out of him. And his bull, I mean, by the end of the movie, he and Edward Norton are both just, like, pulped, you know? Um, but I don't think I would have taken ads out on wrestling shows, which is what, which is what Fox <laughs> yeah, is, because I don't think that's, that's not the audience going to like that movie. I think, you know, I think, you know, Bill Mechanic, who's a really smart executive of he helped make Titanic. He was the one who Greenwood Fight Club. He was the guy who would fight with Rupert Murdoch over Fight Club. You know, he really thinks that the internet now would be the way to sell that movie. That you could really hit directly that audience uh, for opening weekend. And maybe I think maybe it would just be a movie you open on a few hundred screens for a few weeks and then slowly build out. But in terms of marketing, I don't know. Those PSAs are really funny. I don't know if they tell you. It's a weird movie because it's like the rule of marketing is tell people what it's about. Don't don't try to tell them that it's something else. But then also. How do you sell Fight Club? It's like half the movie is kind of a secret. Half the movie's still up for debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you sell it as here, here's one, of, here's America's best movie star at the moment, who's not Tom Cruise, and America's coolest young character actor, and they're going to you know kick the crap out of each other for two and a half hours in this very dark movie that ends with the world with credit card company buildings being blown up. That's a tough sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the same time, you want people to know, go in, sort of prepare for something like that. And I, I do, I do think people were not prepared for it. And you can see in the press, you know, Fincher and, and Pitt and Norton in, in the magazine articles they did before it came out, 
trying to convey like, oh, this is funny, and another actor will be like, well, it's not that funny. It's like it's a very hard movie to to really boil down. You know, it's it's uh, it's not like making soap. It's not just distilling yeah. <laughs> certain elements. It's it's a very messy process to sell that movie. But honestly, the fact that movie didn't do well only made it cooler. I mean, that's what made it a dorm room poster kind of movie for years. You know, mm-hmm. I think the fact that it was seen as this outside, subversive, non-mainstream movie certainly helped give it a kind of afterlife. Absolutely. That, that movie feels like, when I first saw it, like dangerous, like a Rolling Stones song would feel kind of dangerous, like kind of like you don't know where this is going to go, what's going to yeah. happen next. And like, you know, most movies, you know exactly the three-act structure, structure of what's going to happen. And with something like Fight Club, you just were like, where the hell is this going? It wasn't following the formula. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also, and the timing was really, I mean, it, they moved it a couple months to get it away from Columbine, but when you watch that movie, like, it's still about a bunch of angry, youngish guys who want to just inflict this kind of anarchy for no real ideological reason that you can quite pin down. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a very, for that to come, you know, so many years after the Oklahoma City bombing, I think that movie was rattling for a lot of reasons, um, but I certainly remember seeing an opening night in New York and the crowd was very it was it was a you know it was a mid it was in the midtown Manhattan crowd. It's a very big movie crowd. And there was certainly a lot of like you could just sort of sense a kind of like discomfort, especially in the last twenty minutes. Um, but I, I do enjoy FICO. I think it's very funny. It's amazingly well made. I think, you know, Brad Pitt's probably the best movie star character actor of his generation and I think Edward Norton is probably the best character actor who was never quite a movie star of his generation. Like it's the performances are great. It's but I also understand why people are like, like Oof, that is that's a radioactive movie for a lot of people, and I totally get why, you know. Like, like in the DVD, when you open it up, it has all those like things like this is about destroying capitalism, or like all all the yeah. little clips in it. I like love the how the, the design of the DVD. Yeah, and it sold like you know they sold at least twelve to fifteen million copies of that DVD, which is amazing. Made tons of money off that movie in the end. Yeah. Like um. Like about the the Matrix and like the red pilling and like kind of a lot of the movies from '99 like had taken kind of a dark twist by people kind of manipulating the message and even like Magnolia like you know when I was seeing like the search and destroy stuff when I saw the movie I was like you know you just kind of lie I think it's funny and now you're like there are guys like this these are guys there are guys online getting kind of radicalized yeah. with this and it's just do you think this is something that PTA and Tom Cruise new was under the surface or do you think that this is just something that's like really come out like in the age of the internet and everything since then I mean I think it's kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier I mean I think whether I mean I think Paul Thomas Anderson had based that character on, a, on a, some audio he had heard of a guy who was a real like pickup artist but the level of um, I mean that the, the degree of malice to that character and the real spitefulness I mean I you know it's Again, it's one of those things where it's like, did he know this was coming up in the culture, that it's always been there, or did he, did he just have his antenna out, or was, that it was just a coincidence? But certainly, um, I mean, these movies have also, these were kind of the first big kind of cult movies of the internet era, which means people never stopped talking about them, which means, it's, so people are eventually going to take the messages of those movies and recalibrate them. And the, and the weird thing is, you know, it's also, you know, I generally don't like the idea of like, well, the filmmakers are saying this and you're interpreting it wrong. I mean, I think people I know who know the Wachowskis say that even though Wachowskis would be okay with these, that they would probably loathe these interpretations that are of the Matrix and Red Pilling, but at the same time, they wanted to create something. They were philosophy students. They wanted to create 
you know, sort of coursework that you take from it what you want. Um, to me, it is very strange that The Matrix has become kind of this far-right movie when it's, you know, a giant corporate-funded movie with two trans female directors and a very diverse cast and, you know, like, <laughs> a very notably um, empowered female heroine as the second lead. So there's a little bit of willful manipulation, but... I don't know. I mean, it's, what's interesting is when I would talk to people who worked on The Matrix or Flight Club, I'd say, well, you know about these, you know, sorry, are you aware of thinking that this was all stuff? They're like, oh, I didn't know about that. Like, people are like, oh, they're doing, they're saying what about The Matrix and about red pilling? And they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. And they, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if some of the creators are actually aware of how, I mean, Chuck Palahniuk is certainly very aware that the term snowflake has become something bigger. Um, I think, and I think it kind of delights him because he wants his work to, you know, to, to live on in that way, I guess, or to be interpreted. Again, these people put their works out there, and they wanted it. They want them to have some sort of ten, you know, fixture in the culture. I'm not sure if they'd be happy with all the ways they've been interpreted and twisted. I don't know. It's a very weird. It's very weird. So many of these movies have been are still being argued about, and their ideas are still being. And yeah, I mean, red pilling is is every day. I mean, the end of Fight Club is. The whole end of Fight Club, which is let's blow up the credit card companies while there's no one in, inside the building. Things it's like that's about three degrees removed from some of the Democrats' platform for even president this year. It's like we're, ta- we're literally talking about abolishing credit card debt and student debt. It's like this movie's like yeah, you do that by blowing up all the buildings that will keep the records of it, so everyone starts you know the whole idea of starting over at zero. So these movies are still being talked about in some way, whether it's just kind of subconsciously, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, who do you think has lived up to their 99 promise? Uh, is this the case where everyone peaked? And is it because of the year 99 and everything surrounding it? I mean, I think I think Brad Pitt, I, I think he has really lived up to that. Become just an incredible character actor, which you were just, we were just really getting a taste of that at that time. Yeah, I think no one. I think I think David Fincher was the only director. To, I mean, I think that's one of the best movie star, movie director pairings. If you look at Seven, Benjamin Button, and and Fight Club, but especially Fight Club. I mean, the idea of like, you know, David Fincher is so smart about casting because he casts people who are really good, but he also there's always an extra layer of some sort of greater cultural awareness, like you know. Casting Ben Affleck in Gone Girl, like casting this actor who'd been beat up in the tabloids for two years to play this totally beaten down guy, it's like it's brilliant. And casting Brad Pitt, like okay, this I'm gonna have a character who's clearly a maniac, but what if I make the the guy who's playing this maniac the most charismatic, good-looking guy in the world right now? And it's like, well, it's you would see why someone would be like seduced by his philosophy, you know? So I think, but I think Pitt has always been really great. I think he's just always been. A supporting actor, and that's what you know. Once upon a time in Hollywood proves that so well. But almost everything he's done, like Ocean's Eleven, I mean, Moneyball is kind of a lead, but it's also it's kind of a supporting role. I mean, I think when they were trying to make these big, splashy Brad Pitt movies in the late '90s, like Seven Years into Bed or Meet Joe Black, it's like I don't think he wanted to be on screen that much. Mm-hmm. I think he's mm-hmm. and he's, I think he's lived up to a lot of promises. I think of all the filmmakers, um, you know. I think Sofia Coppola has her own sort of real, really fervent, established cult and aesthetic that's that's very deserving. Her movies are, you know, she there's a Sofia Coppola look the same way there's a Wes Anderson look. You can kind of know, and it's kind of hard to describe, but you go on Tumblr and you're like, oh, this is this is her aesthetic, kind of from the Virgin Suicides, kind of filtered down. Um, so I think a lot of them. I mean, I certainly. 
I never would have thought Sam Mendes would be making like one of the best Bond movies. I mean, it's like it's right. very interesting how all these careers turned out. Um, the first Sam Mendes Bond movie, the second one I didn't care for so much, but um, these 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 careers have all kind of shifted. What's really interesting is when I was doing the book, so many of these interviews were people who were calling from me, calling me from the set of a TV show now because. David Fincher's doing Mindhunter. Mike Judge is doing Silicon Valley. You know, um, Kimberly Pierce, who wrote and directed Boys Don't Cry, she was doing, I think, I Love Dick on Amazon. Steven Soderbergh had just come off The Nick and was about to do a Netflix movie. So they've all, they're all still working and they've all kind of moved on. But what they're doing now is it's, they're fulfilling their promises, I think, more on TV and streaming than, than, than the big studios might be letting them do. You know, I mean, Fincher hasn't made a movie now since Gone Girl, which was what? Five? Yeah, five, five years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he's making like the greatest, you know, 20 hour serial killer movie of all time on Netflix. But, um, you know, a lot of these people are just not making the movie. They were making one movie every two years back then for a long, for a long stretch, and they're not doing it. I mean, Soderbergh's got two movies this year. They're, they're both Netflix movies. Um, the first one was High Flying Bird, was fantastic. I'm very excited for the second one. It does feel a little different, though, that they're not big Steven Soderbergh theatrical releases, you yeah. know? Yeah. Absolutely. Was 99 the year the movies died, like the day the music died with Buddy Holly and Richie Valens? Is that, is that applicable? Oh, I think, you know, I, I still love going to movies. I'm still very excited for movies. I, I think it's, you know, I think what happened was we didn't get, the next couple of years there was still some really amazing stuff. And I do think, you know, I think 2007, which I was talking about, was a really strong year. I think 2000 and... 17, which was Get Out and Phantom Thread and Lady Bird, and I think Call Me By Your Name may have been that yeah. year. Call Me By Your Name. was like, there was, I, mean, I couldn't make a top 10 list that year, and it was a lot of really exciting ideas. And also, it was a lot of really cool, smart movies that became big cultural hits. So, like, people had to go see them, you know, um, and they weren't based on anything for the most part. Uh, they weren't franchise movies. But it just became very hard to make, it became very hard to justify a movie like Club. It became very hard to justify a movie like The Matrix unless you're now remaking The Matrix, which is what they're doing apparently. Um, <laughs> I just think at that point, you know, you got a combination of a really good economy, you had a combination of a um, young people going to movies and middle age. I mean, every generation was still going to movies. Video games have taken a, a bit of a chunk out of movies in the '90s, but I don't think to a way you could really mm. perceive. It. I don't think you would see in the box office. Um, but TV really just TV and the internet just took a huge chunk of that cultural um, attention span from movies. And I don't know, some, sometimes I feel bummed about that. Sometimes I think, well, you know, David is not making, like I said, David is not making movies every three or four years, but Mindhunter is pretty amazing. And it's like, mm. it's nothing that would have been on TV 20 years ago. And I'm grateful that there's still really good stories being told. And, um, and I also think the franchise movies, while they can be kind of infuriating, I think they make, they sometimes make really great ones. I mean, like, I was just Mission Impossible Fallout was on Hulu and I was like I'm gonna rewatch that bathroom fight scene like, even yeah, stuff like yeah. that <laughs> yeah. that's a great scene you know Mad Max Fury Road um, you know the, the first uh, the first Michael B. Jordan Rocky movie Ryan, anything mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler does anything Ryan Johnson does I mean there's like there's still a lot of really cool big movies being made um, there's also just a lot of crap where you're like do we need an Ugly Dolls movie like do we need <laughs> do we need another X-Men movie that clearly the cast does not want to do like it's just yeah. Those kind of things where it just feels like there's no idea behind it. That's when it gets very depressing. Absolutely. When you see 
so many sequels, and this year has been crazy because these sequels are not doing well. Um, you know, when you see them kind of not doing well in the box office, it's like I think people are a little sick of this. Like you've got to give them something else to go see the movies for. Otherwise, they've got nice big screens in them. Yeah, you know, and they've got good shows to watch. So how are you going to draw them out? You know, absolutely. Well, uh, you were talking about like your top ten, and we all have like our top ten every year. Were there movies that? you wrote about that didn't quite make the cut, didn't make the top. Like in the, like in the book. Yeah. Oh, like personal movies that I didn't love that I wrote about? Or, the, yeah. the, or, the, well, or that you loved, but you like oh. couldn't put it in the movie, in the book. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, you know, um, I love talented Mr. Ripley. It's on my top 10. Um, at that point I couldn't, you know, at that point I couldn't get, couldn't get Matt Damon to talk. I was reporting the book. During the Harvey Weinstein stuff, so I think there was, and that was a Merrimax movie that Weinstein very much pushed. So I think everyone was being very quiet Gosh, at that yes. point. Um, but I love that movie; it's beautiful. It's so you know, at the, at the time, I think people were like, "Talented Mr. Ripley's fine," because I think it was a, I think the, the rub against it was that it was this very classically made '50s kind of beautiful, gorgeous Technicolor drama that was coming out right after The Matrix and Sixth Sense and Blair Witch so people are like no cinema's changing we're not going to do these kind of old movies anymore but it's beautiful I also I love Deep Blue Sea it's the second best shark movie of all time <laughs> I, love, I mean I love it as a movie but I also love it as like back when the studios were like let's make a 60 million dollar monster movie it's like I love that they would do that because it's because they would really not. Fun, yeah. It's the best kind of dumb, dumb B movie that's so, so stupidly well made. Um, just satisfying. <laughs> that would have been hard to fit in as well. And there's little things. There's a great little horror movie called Ravenous that I really love. Um, there's a lot of things I couldn't fit in. There's also a lot of movies that I rewatched and I was like, you know, I gotta say, uh, Denzel Washington's great, but I'm okay with not covering the hurricane. I was like, this was this movie was was like I was rewatching. I was like, oh, this is really snoozy. It was just like I was happy not to. To do it, um, so there was stuff that I had to leave out, and some of it hurt. And I had to cut the straight story quite a bit, which I really like a lot too, and did some interviews for that. But you just at a certain point, you can't put every movie in, and every movie I wrote about, I had to write about both the making of it and also its kind of significance, greater significance of the culture back then. And, and sometimes you just had to move on to the next to the next one. Absolutely. Kevin Smith was kind of never riskier or bolder than when he did Dogma. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think that he, why do you think he just like kind of went back to his wheelhouse, like after Dogma? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. I mean, Dogma was, it's a weird movie to watch now because it's, it's a filmmaker with a lot of big ideas, but I don't know whether he quite had the kind of uh, proficiency back then to do it. It's, it's, I know it has a lot of real obsessive fans. I, I didn't love it at the time rewatching it. I was like, boy, this is. He's you're seeing some limitations in his directing back then, um, but I don't know. He's a whole interesting kind of test case because I really loved. I mean, I've you know, Clerks came out my freshman year in college. I loved it. I loved Mallrats. I worked at a video store. Mallrats <laughs> came out. We just watched that screener all the time. Um, and then I increasingly, and I like parts of Chasing Amy. I liked at the time. I'm not sure how that's aged, but. Increasingly, I just sort of felt like um, I was like, I don't need to see the same jokes or characters. I, I don't know. I mean, Dogma was a big risk for him, and you know, he got death threats. It's a movie about religion. The Catholic League was the Catholic was Catholic League wasn't responsible for the death threats, but they were. He was getting pushed back from both the formal sort of Catholic Church uh, offshoots, and then also people who just were sending him and his family death threats. Apparently, um, it's a very risky and very brave movie. I wish someone would try to make a movie like that now with that kind of cast about about faith and spirituality 
But I don't know what happened. I mean, his his trajectory is very interesting. I think he I think he just was always destined to be a cult filmmaker and to have his own. I mean, he's of all of these filmmakers from that year, he's got this insane fan base that he's kept alive by either whether he's just dropped out for a couple of years too. I mean, he's managed to keep his fan base going despite some pretty bad movies and despite just kind of not making movies for a while. Now he's obviously back and doing stuff again, but um, I don't know. His, he's a very interesting, he's a whole, I feel like he's a whole other episode of like, it's like digging into Kevin Smith's career is very, very strange. It's, it's been a very interesting kind of rise and fall and rise again, I guess. Mm-hmm. On the marketing front, Blair Witch is kind of, was kind of brilliant in the marketing yeah. and the website, pulling it off as real, because, I mean, I guess we just weren't really used to that at all. Yeah. Um, we go, we think there's a website, and wow, wow this is legit. <laughs> this is for real. Um, when we saw it, didn't know any of that. All we heard was yeah. it was so scary that people were throwing up in the theater, and yeah, yeah, yeah. we're a little disappointed that we didn't. <laughs> We went in with these high expectations of you will be yeah. physically ill. <laughs> I wanted to vomit during Blair Witch and Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace is so great, I just vomit. <laughs> and those are the two internet movies that you know, those are two movies mm-hmm. that the internet spent like a long time building up. And you know, Blair Witch was so. I think the thing is, people would try to recapture that and were like, uh, the, the, when you look back at all the press about how Blair Witch was sold, that they made his website months before it opened and that they built, put all this fake material on there and kind of just left it out there for people to interpret. There was this sense of this is a new way to market movies. And it's like, you could only have to do that for the Blair Witch. It's not like you can market a bunch of movies where people are going to go, did these kids really die? It's like it was a very singular sort of thing, but it was such a clever. It was such a clever and kind of organic, obvious use of the web. It's like, yeah, we want to get people excited for this movie. We want them to maybe think it's kind of fake. So let's just put a bunch of, or think it's real. So let's just put a bunch of stuff out there and leave it kind of up in the air whether this is real or not and really sell it as if, no, these kids really disappear in the woods. And, you know, it created a phenomenon where I think, I do think there were some people who legitimately went to the theater and thought that it was real. That I'm sure that existed. I think most people, though, just very happily went along with it and were like, ooh, this is supposedly the fake or real snuff film. I think that's that was a kind of fun part of that movie, was the way it generated all this kind of curiosity. And even if you knew it was probably pretend, it wasn't like now where someone would just tweet at you, yeah, it's fake. It's like you still could have a little bit of mystery. Even the, the internet didn't spoil Everything Every, back yeah. You kind of had to work pretty hard to be spoiled by the internet back in '99. Mm-hmm. Whether it was The Sixth Sense or Blair Witch, you know, there was a little bit of reveals. You know, even exactly. when you look at some of the first like Phantom Menace postings on opening weekend, people aren't talking about Liam Neeson being killed. Like they're really trying to respect the the you know what happens in the movie and respect the surprises. Whereas now it would just be like a Reddit thread, like why did they kill Qui Gon? Yeah, it's like on opening day, we mm-hmm. just give away the entire movie. You know? Exactly. Well, and you fast forward to now, and it's just we've got fake news around us everywhere, and we're just like, yeah, that seems real. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And I, I try to stay off the internet as much as I can, or at least on film around sites or big so, movies, like before, like you know, Last Jedi or like Endgame, because yeah. I don't want some. Or like Game of Thrones, or Game episode. of Thrones, just like some, and you <laughs> yeah. have you have to go see that stuff like opening weekend because you know someone's gonna screw yeah. that up for you. Yeah, yeah. Which is a good reason to go out. It's a good excuse to go see an opening weekend. Though. Mm-hmm. I'm more than happy if it's like that's that's what gets me out of the house to do it. I'll be I'm, exactly. I'm still happy to see a movie. Thanks for the motivation, guys. Yeah. Uh, what's your next project? I have no idea. 
I'm just sort of working on, I do a lot of freelance stuff for like The Ringer and a bunch of other places, and the book was like two and a half years, and we moved cross country during it, so I'm like trying to, uh, kids recognize me again, which is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'd like to do another book soon, I don't know if it'll be on 90s film or why, my editor and I have been kicking around ideas, but I'm not really sure, and it's also, it's just... You have to find a topic that you will be interested in, not just for a couple months, but for at least three years. So sometimes you bring up an idea and you think about it and you kick it around for a couple of days. And you're like, I, I could, I can't spend three years just focusing on this. The, the 99 book was just there was so much to pull from. Like I never got bored because mm-hmm. you could either you could either go to a new movie or you could talk about Y2K. Or you could talk about Clinton Lewinsky. There's a lot of stuff to pull from. So. I like the idea of doing the book that has that's about something very specific, but it's kind of about bigger things as well. So that's that's kind of the challenge to figure out for now. Absolutely. What's the what's the doggy bag? What are you taking home? What's the legacy of 1999 films? Oh um, well, I hope the legacy is that people want to do it again. I mean, I, I think that I, I hope that. You know, I, I think the legacy might be that we are about to enter another period like that because when I talked to the executives about what was going on in the middle of the late 90s, a lot of them said, hey, we were having too many franchise sequels that weren't working. We were, we were making a lot of movies out of TV shows that wasn't working. And I think the studios this year are in a panic. I think they, they must realize that this idea of just generating franchise after franchise after franchise and then rebuilding is, is not stable. It can work, and it obviously works if you're Disney, but that's like they're the best at doing this and I think you know people don't like hearing this but eventually at some point people will get sick of comic book movies or get superhero movies maybe not completely abandoning them but you know everyone points to the western or the musical and it's like when you look back at just how long and how popular westerns were they were the biggest thing in the culture and then they were gone for decades and that does happen with film so I'm hoping that you know there is some sort of carry on of that like I would love if like next year for reasons we will never be able to figure out for another 20 years winds up being some insanely cool film year or maybe this you know like I said 2017 it's like that was really exciting I think we're still kind of feeling the reverberations from Get Out and Lady Bird and that in a lot of movies that year so I'm hoping I'm hoping the, I'm hoping the doggy bag is that people sort of fight for original ideas but also original ideas that can be told in two hours with a couple of big movie stars not just an original idea for a, a three year you know, limited TV series. Like I do think, this, you know, movies and storytelling medium. It's it's great. It's two hours. You get a lot of. You can do a lot of cool stuff with the, with the, you know, the theater going experience. It's pretty wonderful if you're watching a good movie. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year has kind of reminded people that like, oh yeah, yeah, like an original movie with really great movie star actors is an incredibly satisfying way to spend a night. Um, so maybe that will that will kick that will sort of inspire the executives to sort of seek those kind of movies out. I don't know. I don't know if movie executives really um, love movies anymore. I, don't, I think they are... It's just I a money-making machine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, we can only hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on thank the show. Guys. Really Great. appreciate it. So this is, this is an incredibly yeah. satisfying morning. <laughs> No, this is great. It's a great way to spend a Sunday morning. I really appreciate your interest in taking in so many great questions. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And let us know when you have another book, and we'll do a podcast on it. <laughs> oh, cool. That'd be okay. great. I appreciate right. it. Yeah, it's going to be about the floating bag from American Beauty. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a floating bag is another stone teenage observation about uh, the meaning, man. Absolutely. <laughs> you can really dive right into the philosophy of life in that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll email you when I get this edited and then when we release it. 
Cool. Thanks again, guys. Okay. Okay. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You have a great day. We might be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. Good night.